everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I have a really interesting podcast today, and I'm joined by uh, William Hines, who's a coordinator and head of New Approaches for Economic Challenges at the OECD. And it's really exciting because he's been working with a, another Australian who's living in San Francisco also, and they've been writing a lot of articles around the brain health capital grand strategy. And as you know, from the podcast, this is a interest of mine and, and I can see the future being driven in terms of both economics and other places through brain health. So thank you, William, for joining us. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your background, um, just to give them an idea of your experience and maybe how you got to this level of thinking in terms of economic policy? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm originally Irish, so um, I took some pretty safe options when I was younger and I studied economics because, uh, you know, this is a very sensible thing to do. And economists have all the answers about how economies and financial markets work. So I, I thought this was a very sensible idea. Um, but I found out that actually there was a lot of things we didn't really understand. And um, in my studies, uh, I looked at economic history and tried to understand long-term evolution of various different systems. And then in my PhD, I wanted to look at um, crime surges and uh, how these big increases in, in crime could happen over a very short space of time. And I looked at the 1960s and 70s US crime surges. And to do that, I had to understand a lot about genetics, about uh, behavioral science. And, you know, why do people commit crime? Uh, you know, what goes wrong? Uh, and what can society do about it? And so uh, I did a, a lot of interdisciplinary study around these nonlinear dynamics and eventually looked at um, heroin epidemics and how implicated were heroin epidemics in, in causing these crime surges. Uh, from there, I went in a, in a different direction. I've been worked at the World Trade Organization, working on how to integrate developing countries into the world trading system. And from there, went to the OECD, where in 2014, uh, I joined the Nike team, the New Approaches to Economic Challenges effort that you mentioned. And that was set up at the OECD really to learn lessons from the global financial crisis. And our member states really felt there was a lot we didn't understand about how the economy actually works. And there were a lot of analytical failings. There was groupthink that a financial crisis couldn't happen in OECD countries. We misunderstood the linkages between the financial markets and the real economy. And you know, there were differing perspectives about whether we just need to fix up our economic frameworks so just better understand essentially financial markets within economics. And if we did that, then problem solved. Uh, but there were others who thought that the crisis revealed some very fundamental problems with economics, some really severe analytical shortcomings. And what Nike was set up to do is to really examine those, to have a debate about how we could take a, a new approach to economics and policy uh, based on interdisciplinary findings. So not be limited to this monopoly of economics, but um, to really integrate different findings from, from a range of different disciplines and uh, to provide better policy advice on that basis. And so that's what we've been trying to do. And earlier on in the Nike, I think we wore more of, of the opinion that all we need to do is bolt things on or modify our economic frameworks. And that led us to things like 
behavioral economics and behavioral insights. Um, but more recently, I think we've gone in a more radical direction that uh, these fixes are perhaps insufficient. And that um, if we think of uh, the efforts to uh, modify and improve economics uh, by having more behavioral realism, institutional realism, uh, by having more data, but essentially maintaining a lot of the fundamental assumptions of uh, neoclassical economics, like uh, the, the equilibrium assumption, uh, very restrictive assumptions about behavior and how we build individuals in the micro into our macro models. And now we're looking at complexity, interconnectedness, uh, systems, resilience, sustainability, how these things evolve, how they change and how they can fail. And it's not, the idea is not anymore that um, all these systems will self-organize in a way which will eventually get back to some equilibrium, but that actually these can destabilize and these can fail. And we've seen a bit of that recently, that uh, these, behave, these systems don't behave in a very uh, easy to understand way. And that the reason, or one of the reasons is because these are social systems, they're made up of people. And um, Murray Gell-Mann once said that, um, you know, the economics and social sciences, these were always looked down on compared to the hard sciences, you know, like physics and, and neuroscience and other things like this. But what Murray Gell-Mann said was that this isn't correct. In fact, the social sciences are the hard sciences, because think how difficult physics would be if electrons could think. And uh, so that's really where, where we are today, trying to understand the individuals how they interact and what sort of systemic properties that interaction can have. But that starts by understanding the individual. They talk a little bit about there are silos in everything we do. In neuroscience, this concept of being able to optimize your brain health and performance across the lifespan is something that's quite argued in many fields. I don't know if you've struck that the concept of neuroplasticity and some people believe that that doesn't work because you saw what happened with uh, probably five or six years ago where there were these uh, studies saying that some brain training uh, platforms don't work to optimize you know, neuroplasticity. And so it ended up being another dogfight about what's whether you could actually promote your brain health across the lifespan or not. I don't know if you've been facing any of that. Well, um, not really, because most of our focus uh, in this area has been on young people. Basically, okay. we've been trying to get the um, the education policy community involved okay. uh, in just how we organize school curricula, Great. Uh, how to introduce news training, and to put brain optimization or you know, better understandings of how the brain works, and to put that into the policy discussion. Although I must say that the education policy community in the OECD has done a lot of work on, on neuroscience and has tried to understand how these things work. So um, in, in a way, we're just connecting it to a broader discussion. That's partly uh, what we're doing. But we, we've been looking at aging and we have a paper coming out soon on, on aging, but it doesn't really get delve into the type of detail that you're talking about. And in, in a way, this brain capital initiative is still very much in a developmental phase. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to raise awareness about some of these issues, but we haven't quite got to the level of detail where we've um, been able to uh, discuss, debate, experiment with these uh, 
the type of issue that you mentioned. Yeah. So obviously, once you start working in this space, you must start to think about your own brain health. What what it came up be. for you as you as you <laughs> um, as you thought about that? Like, what are you doing, uh, for example, to optimize your own brain health? Well, I mean, I think I'm I'm trying to remain active and engaged, and in, in OECD, um, well, any government uh, institution, they, you know, you can get stuck in a certain way of thinking about things. And uh, you, those positions you might have can harden over time. So I think it's really important to remain exposed to uh, new ideas. And that's what we're about in the OECD, new approaches to economic challenges, um, to go beyond just learning more and more and becoming more specialized about economics, but to try and connect that to other disciplines, to stay flexible, agile, uh, to try to understand more about science. Uh, and so this, I've tried to optimize by essentially continuing to explore, read and stay agile rather than uh, double down and specialize. And again, I think this is probably a change and a useful change when we think about brain health as opposed to traditional ways of training where we really did put an emphasis on specialization. You, you learn more and more about less and less. And um, I think I'm trying to you know, learn broadly about things and how things work and understand them. And so that's how I try to optimize my brain health. I noticed in one of your papers, your co-author is Sandra Chapman in Dallas. Yep. And um, I work in similar spaces where you can actually get an index of your brain health, cognitive, cognitive capacities. Have you been able to access her assessment tools to get a baseline understanding and see what it's all about? I haven't, but, uh, you know, I should do this. But uh, we've, we've had a couple of times uh, Admiral Bill McRaven, who's uh -huh. uh, a major advocate of the work that uh, Sandy is doing and... Um, he, his point of view, I think, is one that I sympathize with a lot, that uh, when he was in the military, he'd have periodically a physical exam. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd ask all these questions about, you know, your heart and your organs and uh, your general level of fitness. They never ask any questions about the brain. Uh, and that would seem to be a pretty important aspect of uh, your overall health and well-being. And uh, so I think that's that's changing. Maybe tools like this can be useful to at least start the discussion about how we could uh, have some sort of baseline and how we could start to integrate questions into regular medicals and, and health examinations so that um, we can detect problems early and we can see how people are doing their broad well-being rather than just uh, whether the mechanical systems are, are functioning correctly. Um, we, we need a much more systemic approach, which would integrate the brain. Yeah, I found his, uh, I, I listened to his video on that uh, uh, webinar that you were having. And I found mm -hmm. it really interesting that how he came into it, like we all do through our own personal experiences or family history, and how, how his whole family benefited from doing brain health training starting with the baseline brain health index and then watching a change over six months, which really changed his fundamental acceptance of this concept that you could promote brain health. I thought that was really fascinating how he talked about that. So, yeah, that made me think that you're probably doing something similar writing about, about it. Um, 
And this is something that I think many people um, listening to this podcast can, that that's what they're listening for is to find out those strategies to understand that this, these tools and are available to people now. It's not like a black box like we used to think it was anymore. Well, I've we, through these discussions with Bill McRaven and Sandy, we've encouraged our member countries to um, visit the website. And uh, I had feedback from some ambassadors that they tried that and they found it very useful. So um, I think it is essentially part of this whole brain capital discussion is getting these things more widely known in different policy communities. Absolutely. Because um, we might not think that these things are relevant, but of course they're relevant to almost everything that we do in policy. So um, yeah, we're, we're trying to raise awareness, but going back to your point about questions and uncertainties about whether these things work. Um, I think it's easy to be skeptical and um, to say, well, this looks like, you know, I, I, I read the, I do the crossword every day. So I'm covered on this. I don't need to uh, do these types of exercise, but it, it is about putting it within a system and it'll work for some people and probably for others, it'll be a little less uh, effective. But um, is this something that again, Going back to one of your early points, is this something we want to pursue at a societal level, that this could become a regular part of people's health routine, just as they exercise every day, or maybe every week, um, they should be doing these type of brain health uh, activities as well. And I think that would move us in the direction of putting brain health more on the agenda, more central to the part of the health and well-being agenda. And I think that's where it should be. Yeah, and I think the thing that I've discovered is that by using the word brain health, which I keep coming back to, it's very important because it allows people to talk about their brain in a healthy way, as you said, um, whereas before we kept not talking about it, which meant that it got no focus or attention because people thought you were either crazy or it would affect your career. Um, and I did hear one of these questions on one of your podcasts raised about the negative side effects of being able to assess people's brain health and using them in workplaces. Um, I can also see there's good and bad sides. People can use things against people. So I, I'm sure you're thinking through all of that as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And surprisingly, the ethical dimensions of this were also raised by some of our colleagues that... Um, you're putting an emphasis on uh, highly skilled people and uh, people who use the brain, but the type of skills we need in economy are, are varied and some are physical. And I just thought it was curious because as you said, we want to optimize people's brain performance because no matter what job you do, you should be doing that. And um, again, it's kind of this mechanistic linear way of thinking about inputs uh, and and how we generate outputs and this is it's a central issue that we need to look at much more broadly and um, optimizing health brain health is an issue that affects everybody it's not just high skill workers uh, and it's not just entrepreneurs that are creative and innovative everybody for their well-being should be thinking about their brain so um we're not there yet. Uh, and we've talked a lot about well-being in the OECD, but again, it's disconnected from uh, the, the brain health issues. Well, I think we have one uh, aspect of well-being, which is related to mental health. And so we look at 
mental health uh, across different OECD countries. But these pale in consideration to things like social connection, environment, um, income, uh, housing even is a, an aspect of well-being. We think of all these, but the brain is probably a cross-cutting issue that will affect things. And just to take one example of that, we've uh, written a few papers about the environment and the brain. And um, you know, when we think about pollutants, plastics, uh, and a whole range of neurotoxins, the, the environment, again, it's not something that is separate from discussion of the brain. It, it, the brain affects the environment because you know, we, we talked about whether the, the brain was accelerating the climate crisis and looked at uh, science denialism and uh, these sort of issues and how we process information. We're more susceptible to um, fake news and things like that. But also the, the changing climate and environmental issues affect the brain and how it works. So uh, I keep repeating myself, but it's uh, an important point. The, uh, we just can't separate out these issues and just have a box where the brain issues are dealt with because they, they're cross-cutting and they affect on almost every economic and social aspect of what we do. Um, thank you for that. And as we head out to the close of the podcast, I have to, I guess, finish on an economic question uh, because that's your interest and interest in your expertise here. We, we focus a lot about behavioral economics and some of these people won prize, Nobel Prizes, et cetera. But, but now that we're learning a lot more about genetics, neuroscience and brain imaging, behavior isn't, is been like, is what you can see of somebody, but behavior is learnt and inherited over many generations. So some, how do you look past the behavior and just look at the brain and, inter, and integrate that into your model rather than behavioral models? It's more about the neuroscience um, before and underpins the behavior. Yeah, well, I think that again, looking at the things like the global financial crisis, um, this idea that individuals are rational decision makers with very complex uh, utility functions that they optimize, uh, it's tractable and mathematically it's, it's useful to think of behavior in this way. But I think it, its deficiencies have been exposed in that individuals don't really make decisions like this. And I, the, the behavioral economics fix was essentially to say, well, okay, uh, people are not, people are rational, but they have cognitive constraints. Uh, they have particular horizons, they're short-termist, they're myopic, they react to what other people's, people do. And so the whole nudging agenda, behavior insights, was essentially to uh, correct people's behavior. And uh, so they just need to be nudged into doing the, the rational thing. And um, we've been very critical of this approach to policy. It's, um, it's interesting that behavior, it took a long time for policymakers to take note. And now that the academic discussion sort of moved on, uh, the policymakers are still sort of stuck in the behavior insights world. Um, but the problem, I mean, there's lots of problems with behavior insights because the, I mean, first of all, it's, it is a, an agenda where you have to assume that the people designing these nudges know what's good for people. And at a time when there's a lot of problems with trust in policymakers, this idea that we should be trying to manipulate or, or nudge people, that's problematic. Then it's also the case that we're subject to a whole range of different nudges. Behavior is a very fluid uh, idea. And 
if the initial promise of behavioral insights was that we had we did these experiments over uh, one period and we found that it, it led to increases in tax uh, compliance or increased do donor uh, donation, uh, organ donation. And um, so these were very uh, successful nudges. But the problem is if you go back uh, and look at the sustainability of these nudges, we see that people's behavior is very hard to endure. It's hard to keep doing the right thing. Um, so there, we're subject to just a whole range of different influences on our behavior. So um, yeah, I think there are issues with nudges and uh, behavioral economics in general as a, as a field. And I think that we can just go a bit beyond that instead of just behavior uh, and trying to change that to make uh, our models work or to make people fit the model. We actually need to understand a lot more about how the brain works, how it's affected by people, uh, how adaptable and amenable people are, how resilient they are to different shocks. And if we do that, if we endorse that sort of agenda, then it will actually help us understand the economy in new ways, but based on people's actual behavior, not what behavior we would like them to have or uh, what we would assume them to have, but how they actually behave. And um, understanding things is much more important than just trying to affect the behavior, uh, because then we will have uh, a very solid foundation and building block and it will help us engage with um, brain health. Uh, it will help us adapt and amend educational systems to deal with brain skills. And that will help us keep pace with the way the economy is evolving and changing. Yeah. And so um, this is, uh, I think, a necessary shift. And it takes us out of economics. But uh, that's a good thing, because I think what we need is a more integrative economics, where we actually not that the economists are trying to solve all these problems in isolation, but they're working with neuroscientists, with complexity scientists, they're understanding systems a lot more. And that's, uh, that holds much more promise than um, just stripping down individuals so economists can fit them into their models. Absolutely, especially when you really understand how different every brain is like just between you and I and a nudge to me and a nudge to you will be a completely different outcome. So um, I think that as economists like neuroscientists and doctors and people developing drugs for mental health have come to understand it's impossible to run a clinical trial um, and grouping people together for treating mental health problems, for example, because we're so different, the circuits are so different and just evolution itself is so long. It's generated a lot of complexity in terms of the brain wiring that underlies the be different behaviors of people. Um, and I think that's the great breakthrough that's coming. And I'm so happy to be part of this journey too, as we teach people um, about how the brain works so they can empower themselves, um, how people like yourself can set better policies to help people thrive rather than just survive in this world. And I think, I guess the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted how everyone's been differently impacted um, from it. And I think you're probably seeing that too across the OECD. Absolutely, yeah. So thank you, William, for joining us today. We really appreciate it, um, giving us a bit of insight into what's happening. I do hope this new initiative really takes hold. Um, it's really needed, and I think it's going to be the change that's going to drive um, the way that people can live in this new world post the COVID-19 pandemic.
thank you for coming on to the Thriving Minds podcast. Thanks very much.